0: Well, the year, the year was 1939, and in just a few months, the Nazis would invade Poland. The Nazis had already begun persecuting the Jews within their borders, and that May, more than 900 Jewish folks from Germany got on a boat called the St. Louis, and they fled Germany with the hopes that they could come and start a brand new life in a country that had opened its doors so many times before to other, other people. Before these refugees reached their destination, their visas were revoked. And despite direct appeals to President Roosevelt, they were denied entry into the United States. The St. Louis then returned to Europe, where about one-third of the people on that boat were killed during the Holocaust. Three weeks ago, we began this series that we're in right now. It's a series on refugees and immigration. And we opened our series by opening to the scriptures. And one of the things that you'll see for yourself if you read the Bible, you're going to see over and over and over again, there's a command to remember, 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 remember that gets repeated in so many different ways throughout our our text. We're, We're commanded to remember our sacred history as God's people. And there's a whole lot of reasons for that. One of them is summed up really well in this book that's called Welcoming the Stranger. And the quote that I'm pulling from that book is this. The Israelites were commanded to rehearse their history lest they what? Lest they forget it. Lest they forget it. You know, God is wise, isn't he? And he knows how quickly we forget. And as I was thinking about that true story, you can look it up about the St. Louis, I was reflecting on the fact that no one ever told me that story from our nation's history. You know, I had 13 years, public school. I went to a private college for four, had seminary for another three, you know, 20 years of, of opportunities for people to say, you know, there's a really important lesson that we could have learned here. Never heard that story. This important story of the United States sending a boat filled with Jewish refugees back to Hitler, sending them back. You know, and i stopped to think, imagine this. Imagine what if, that was 60 years ago. What if for the last 60 years, we were putting our heads together around this? Can you imagine that? What if for the last 60 years, we were engaging kids in school and people in colleges and in seminaries? What if we were engaging in a conversation to say this was a, this, this didn't have to turn out like that. And what if together we were, we were considering all the complexities And we were creating pathways and protections for vulnerable people who were fleeing evil and violence. We could have came up with something, right? After 60 years? 60 years later, our world is facing the greatest refugee crisis since World War II. And here's a headline that I opened to on Wednesday on Wednesday. This was this week as we're preparing this message. Here's the headline. The U.S. resettled how many refugees in October? Zero. This last October that we just went through, you know how many refugees we welcomed into the United States? Zero. I looked up the stats on this as a reference point the United States because is it maybe that October is just a month we just don't do that or something the average over the last five years for the United States has been 5,000 each October now in a world where the number of refugees would fill about 28,000 St. Louis's we welcomed exactly zero into our nation this is a broken world It's a broken world. You know, we're looking for people to fix it, right? And one of the things we're trying to do is we're trying to vote responsibly. And I came to this building on Tuesday to vote. And I was walking in and I uh, saw a bumper sticker that really caught my attention. I had to take a picture of this one. Take a look at this bumper sticker. (laughs) 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 Any functioning adult in 2020. You know, isn't there something in us that, that we look at this world, right? We look at this world. Regardless of what political place you come from, right? We look at this world and we say, somebody's got to do something. This thing is broken. Somebody should do something. I just finished a book by Brene Brown, and she wrote this book after studying healthy, happy, well-adjusted people for like seven years. She was studying these people. She calls them wholehearted. And one of the things that she discovered is she tried to say, what makes a wholehearted person? She said this. She said, One of the things, wholehearted people, they engage in meaningful work. They don't just say somebody should do something. They engage in meaningful work. When we don't, something deep within us is not right. This is from her book. She said this. She said, I took apart this idea of meaningful work. I interviewed more participants. I found connections. And this is what emerged. We all have gifts and talents. Squandering our gifts brings distress into our lives. When we don't use our talents to cultivate meaningful work, we struggle sharing these gifts and talents with the world, it is, look at this, the most powerful source of connection with God after she interviewed all these folks. And then this, she said, using our gifts and talents to create meaningful work, it's not easy. It takes a tremendous amount of commitment. Well, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about how do we engage in meaningful work together? That's what we're going to look at today. Next week, individuals. We'll talk about individuals. Today, how do we engage in meaningful work together as a church? What could that look like? As columnist Michael Gerson, writing from Lebanon, a nation where nearly one in four residents is a refugee, he observes, he says, if American churches aren't relevant here, they're what? They're irrelevant. If you can't be relevant in a situation like that, then you are irrelevant. LifeWay Research did a study in 2016, not that long ago. Here's what they found. While 86% of American Protestant pastors surveyed by LifeWay Research in 2016 affirmed that, quote, Christians have a responsibility to care sacrificially for refugees and foreigners, less than one in ten said their church was currently involved in caring locally for refugees. Less than one in five was serving them overseas. A little bit of a disconnect, right? So very early into our church, many of you have heard me say this before. Someone who was considering, do I become a part of this thing? They they asked me point blank. They said, how is Emmanuel going to be different than just another suburban church? Those are their words. This is one of those ways, what we're going to be pressing into today. This is one of those ways. This is part of that. So let's get started. I would encourage you to take out your notes and uh, take a look at this. Uh, We're starting off with this. The Church of Jesus Christ, we're at our best when we respond. I I would invite you to circle that word, respond. Respond. We're at our best when we actually do stuff that's good and helpful. The Church of Jesus Christ, we're at our best when we respond. Respond. I was introduced to the term slacktivism last week. Anyone ever heard that term? I hadn't heard it before. Slacktivism. Slacktivism is when you cheer people on or you call people out, but you don't do anything. Besides, cheer people on and call people out, right? The Bible says faith without works is what? It is dead. Say it. Faith without works is dead. It is dead. Our prayers, our Bible studies are slacktivistic. If they don't result in change or inspire action. Can I get an amen to that? Amen to that. There's never been anything like the early Jesus movement. Go back and study history. There was never anything like the Jesus movement when it came to welcoming strangers into community. So let's look at how did they respond. What can we learn from them? How did they respond? And specifically, we're looking today at a complex situation, a situation where there were displaced persons, there were language barriers, and there were practical needs. We're going to look at their example, and then we're going to talk about what can we apply from that. So if you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to the book of Apathy. Book of Apathy. It's found right after the book of John, right before the book of Romans. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to... Um, Go home with one free today. We keep a stack there in the back. And if you do take a look and open up to the table of contents, you're going to find there is no book of apathy. What is that book called that comes between John and Romans? It's called the book of Acts. The book of Acts. Not good intentions, not apathy. It is the book of Acts. The book of Acts. It records the acts of Jesus working through his disciples in the guidance and power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This example of responding well that we're going to look at is in Acts chapter 6, but I want to be sure to put it in context before we start reading. The context for these acts are community. Community. There's a place to write that in your notes. The Church of Jesus Christ. We're at our best when we respond. When we respond as a community, When Jesus walked the earth, he invited people into a new kind of community. It was a community that lived in obedience to God's commands. It was a community that loved one another as Christ loved them. They devoted themselves, we read in the early chapters of Acts, to the apostles' teaching, remember that for later, and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread, and also to prayer, remember that for later too. All who believed, they pooled their resources together, they met regularly, and phrases like, quote, one, in one heart and mind, and, quote, there were no needy persons, characterized their growing family. Was well, as the Lord added to their number, there came a point where those quotes, such as one in heart and mind, and the quotes such as no needy persons, wasn't as descriptive as it had once been. Let's take a look. Here we go. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now, in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists was, rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Food. All right, if you were a widow in that time and in that place, you were very, very vulnerable. We've talked about this before. We highlighted this in the first week of the series as we looked at the story of Naomi and the story of Ruth. Because there were very few employment opportunities for women and there were no real safety nets, widows relied on extended family to care for them which was problematic for those Hellenist widows. The Hellenist widows were likely Greek-speaking Jewish women who weren't born in Jerusalem. It was common in those days, if you were a Jewish man, you're getting old, you're feeling like my time has come, I'm about to pass over that Jordan River, you would go to Jerusalem to die so you could be buried in that promised land. So then what happens if you're the guy, you die, what happens to your widow? Here she is now in this new place where she doesn't have those connections. The widows didn't have the same support networks. The Hellenistic widows didn't have the same support networks that the Hebrew widows had. And most of them didn't speak Aramaic, which was the native tongue of most of the Jews living in Jerusalem. In addition to being vulnerable, in addition to being a displaced person removed from your family networks, in addition to that language barrier, Christianity was a new movement. And it was a new movement whose leader had just been executed there. In Jerusalem. So now you also have that. To be baptized into this new thing is going to isolate you even more. And oftentimes families would be cut off from their own families if they made a decision to follow Jesus. So put all this together. These Hellenistic Christian widows, they didn't have anyone else. They didn't have anyone else. The church was their new family. That brings us to number two. The church of Jesus Christ is at our best. when We respond in community with Compassion with compassion. What did this new family do? They led with love. Love is a natural outflow of authentic community. Real love, not just feelings of connection. Real love. Because everything changes when you get to know people as individuals. I found this quote, it says it well. When you know someone personally, that person stops being a stereotype. They become a complex human being like yourself. Jesus said this. He said, you know that the world's going to know that you're my disciples if you love one another. We can say all the right words. We can sing all the right songs. We can post until our thumbs get tired, you know, love, love, love. If we don't demonstrate love, the Apostle Paul rightly says, you're just an empty, you're like an empty, what was his words? You're, you're a noisy gong, he said. You're a clanging cymbal. This morning I was in the office and uh, Dan was in there getting ready too, and and all of a sudden he started humming "What's Love Got to Do with It" by Tina Turner. So, (laughs) thanks Dan for getting that song in my head, you know. What's love got to do? And um, and I started thinking about that though, and I'm like, okay, all right, maybe it was a little prophetic for today because what's love got to do with it? Everything. Everything. If we have not love, it does not matter what our words are. Does not matter. exactly. The early church didn't just do things. This is important. The early church didn't just do things out of that love. There was more to their community than the fellowship and the breaking of bread. And the, the more than just that starts with this. There's a place right this in your notes. The church of Jesus Christ is at our best when we respond in community with compassion and with clarity. With clarity. Not just this vague sense of, oh, let's help people. There was clarity there was clarity. They zeroed in on the issue at hand. Because they were in community with one another, the church knew what the real issues were. Just as in later years, they identified other issues. In later years, they identified, oh wait, people are gaming the system now. People who have connections are trying to get stuff from the church when they should really be going to their families. People who are capable of work should actually be working instead of trying to go off of other people's generosity. So the church has always been at its best when they recognize what needs to be done here. What's the real issue? And because they knew one another, they knew the real issue is these women need help. They need help. These Hellenistic um, widows, they need help. We're not enabling here. They need help. They knew what the problem was. The Hellenist widows were being overlooked. And here's the plan that the leaders proposed. Continuing on with our passage, let's go verses two through three and the 12 mean the 12 apostles summoned the full number of disciples and said okay it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of god to serve tables therefore brothers pick out from among you seven men of good repute full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty to this important work now notice the apostles plan began with something they should not do There was clarity. Their plan began with something they should not do. They knew they should not give up preaching the word of God. They shouldn't give that up. In fact, they doubled down. This is verse four. But we, meaning the apostles, we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Don't let this slip by. I've talked, how many times have I talked on this passage before and I've let this slip by? And and it's just jumping out at me. What's going on here? If you want to understand why the early church was as effective as they were, this speaks volume right here. The fact that they doubled down on that, which is very different than what a lot of commentators say. A lot of commentators say this. They say, this was a terrible moment in the church because what happened right here, they said, is the, the leadership of the church drew a distinction between the secular and the sacred. We deal with the sacred. You deal with the secular. That's what some commentators actually said. I disagree wholeheartedly. I disagree wholeheartedly. I think they're doing the opposite of that. They're not drawing a line between the scriptures and doing justice at all. The Bible is filled with commands to do what? To act justly. It's bringing it together. It's out of their understanding of God and his word that they're able to say, this is what our response should look like. I can't believe how many people lately have been coming and they're like, oh, are you one of those social justice churches? What in the world do you mean by that? How how do you not be the church of Jesus Christ and act justly? I I don't understand why you're drawing a distinction between doing justice and the scriptures. If we're doing both, they both should be there, right? It is through a deep study and reflection on the word. It is through prayer and fasting that we become better equipped to understand what God says and what our response should be. Faith without works is dead, there's more going on here in, in what they're describing than just avoiding a bottleneck. They're not focusing on the spiritual and dedicating the, delegating the material. The apostles realized if we stop seeking God, we're no longer the church. Then we are just a social justice you know, agency, right? If we stop seeking God, we're no longer the church. If his word no longer is the starting point for everything, then we're no longer his church. Most of us today, we do the opposite. This was so convicting. Most of us today do the opposite of what they modeled here. Most people today, including church leaders, we do all the stuff first, and then if we have any time left over, or if things are really going bad, we pray, right? We do all the stuff first, and we try to squeeze in a little bit of reading on the scriptures. We do all the stuff first. And, and when you think about that, if we're doing all the stuff first, could that be one of the reasons why today's churches, we look a lot more like the culture than we do Christ. I think those two are related. The apostles had a clear vision, clear vision. They knew what their job was as leaders of the Jesus movement. Their job was Make disciples. Make disciples. And you can't make disciples without a disciplined attentiveness to prayer and to the word. All right, let's look at the kind of mature disciples that the apostles were developing. The next one, number four. The Church of Jesus Christ is at our best when we respond with competency. With competency. Caring for displaced persons, it's not rocket science, it's harder. It's harder. It's messy. It's complicated. There are countless variables. And you've got these unique cultures. You have new challenges around every turn. But the apostles, through their teaching, through their coaching, through their example, they raised up impressive leaders. And what do leaders do? They figure things out and help people move from here to there. That's what leaders do. In verse 3, the prophet. Apostles framed out the kind of leaders that the nominating committee should bring back for congregational approval. The men would have a reputation of high character, they should be full of the spirit, and they should be full of wisdom. And as the church continued to develop, you see that they started to go deeper into those lists. Paul has a dozen or so things that he says, Hey, if you're serving in this way, here are the qualities to look for. If you're serving in this way, here are other qualities to add to that. And they selected. Seven men, verses five through six say this. They set before, oh, let's see. We're going to actually, yeah, five and six. All right. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and five other guys. Um, (laughs) These they set before the apostles, and then they prayed and they laid their hands on them. The names of these men are as interesting as they are hard to pronounce. All seven of these names are Greek names. All seven of these names are Greek names. The odds against that happening are too great for this to be coincidence. We know from the inscriptions on tombs in Jerusalem that it wasn't uncommon for a Jewish man to have a Greek name. They had sometimes Greek names. But the majority of Jews didn't go by their Greek names. Very few of the apostles went by a Greek name. And even in Rome, where there were a number of Jews, less than 40% of the Jews had any Greek in their names at all. Now remember, it was Greek-speaking widows who were being overlooked. And it appears as though the early church empowered exceptional leaders from the offended minority to ensure that the system would work. These were exceptional leaders. The one that we know the most about is Stephen, because we get a chance to see his life. If I could assign homework, I would assign, read the rest of chapter 6, read chapter 7 with a couple study Bibles and look at the notes to get an understanding of just how mature Stephen was. This person that likely came from a background You know, outside, all of this was new to him, right? But he had been discipled well. He was a true disciple of Jesus Christ. He was so much like Jesus that the powerful religious leaders that felt threatened by Jesus felt threatened by Stephen as well. And they brought Stephen in for questioning. And in his testimony, it becomes clear that Stephen knows the sacred story. He had heard the sacred story and he knew it. He knew the story of a people that God had called out of their home and a people who had been oppressed along the way. The manner in which Stephen witnessed demonstrated he was full of the spirit of Christ, so much so that when they didn't like that testimony and they began executing him with stones, he followed the example of the master Jesus. And he said, Father, forgive them. Stephen was a remarkable witness, and many of you know this. The Greek word for witness, if we could put that up on the screen, looks an awful lot like the English word for what? Martyr. It's where we get the word. From the witness. A witness that was willing to sacrifice, to witness so fully that we would lay down our life as Jesus did. That's the kind of witness we were coming. We want to be so like Jesus that if it came to that, we would do it. Well, how did Stephen become this kind of witness? The church did their job. The leaders of the church didn't stop and get soft on discipleship. They didn't get soft on pressing into the word. They didn't get soft on prayer. The church raised up true disciples of Jesus. And together as the church, these disciples were able to respond to real needs because they had that maturity. Together as the church, they responded to issues in community with compassion, with clarity, and with competency. Do you notice what didn't make their list? There's a place to write this down. This did not make their list of things that they did. They did not respond with cliches, right? They didn't respond just with cliches. We're getting so good at that as churches. That's slacktivism, right? Just responding with cliches. There was work to be done. The church responded with more than empty words. And look at this. The final verse of this section says, and the word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests of all people became obedient to the faith. And isn't that an interesting phrasing? It's just jumping at me right now. Priests actually became obedient to the faith. (laughs) Wouldn't it be something if Christians actually became obedient to Christ? You know, interesting. The widows got fed, absolutely, absolutely. But what's the emphasis here in this passage as they're wrapping up this story? The emphasis on the word of God is continuing to increase and spread. The emphasis is on the number of disciples increasing. Increasing. And I think one of the reasons, this is my speculation, one of the reasons that that's what's emphasized is because if you have more disciples growing, now you can make a lot more good in our world. A lot more people are going to get fed. A lot more people are going to get healed. A lot more people are going to get helped. And the word of God will go forth, not some twisted version of it. When disciples make disciples, A church's capacity to care increases exponentially. As a church, let's talk about our response to their response. As a church, we're committed to making disciples and introducing disciples to the Hellenistic widows of our day, giving them an opportunity to engage in meaningful work. Because here's what happens when you do. We're trying to do a better job more and more putting these continuums up before you. Here's a continuum that we try to point people to when it comes to reaching out. We want to try to help people. We want to try to take these disciples and help them move from insulated to introduced to go, wait a minute, this is a real issue. How many of you who've been a part of this series have, there's a couple things your eyes are open to that maybe hadn't been before, right? That's part of our job is to, to, to open our eyes to things maybe we didn't have time to think about, reflect on. Okay, so that's one of the things we're doing. Now we also want to provide opportunities to go beyond being introduced, but to actually get engaged, to give you an opportunity to go to the front lines and to see some of these things in action. Because we believe that if the spirit is in you and you get engaged, you're going to become an advocate for that cause. Even if you don't have the time because God's calling you in other areas to get engaged, you're at least going to be an advocate for this area because you've seen it, right? So that's what we're trying to do. Two thousand years ago, Jesus cast a vision for a city on a hill. He challenged us to shine so brightly together that even people who are naturally skeptical, like the priests would have been in those days, they would have they, they they were became curious because they saw these people that were living so differently. And there's a place to write this in your notes. The church, the church can only shine as brightly as her what churches, the church of Jesus Christ as a whole, the one that's that's. Crosses denominations, the one that that crosses continents, the one that crosses history. That church is only as strong as her churches. Let's not be a weak link, right? Can we not be a weak link? At Emmanuel, we're committed to shining as brightly as we can, brightly as we can. This summer, we invited two leaders from Emmanuel Children's Home in Juarez, who are in the midst of all of this. I mean, they're right there in ground zero on the border. We invited them to come up and to join us for the Global Leadership Summit that we were hosting. Their names are Nata and Batel. Nata is the new Executive Director of the Home. Batel is their Director of Development. And that Leadership Summit that we had a chance to participate in—it was amazing. It was amazing. Two days of fantastic, actionable content, and I was so inspired by the the presentations that we were hearing. But I'm going to be transparent with you guys. Um, it was also really hard. Because I'm in this beautiful building, and I had building envy, you know? I had building envy. God may or may not provide a big, beautiful building for our church someday, but what brings me joy, what brings me deeper joy, because I've been in some beautiful buildings before, what brings me deeper joy is that God is doing a big, beautiful work in our people. And I can say that not just from my vantage point, but it was really interesting. Um, separately, individually, both Battelle and nata they both used the same language to describe you. And without me asking, tell me what you think about our church and that kind of stuff. In fact, it usually came up as I was kind of mourning. I'm like, oh, this building is so awesome. You know, they've said things like this. I wrote some of them down. They talked about our depth of the people that they met when they spoke met with you, they talked about maturity that they saw, they talked about your commitment that you have to God, to one another, to people that you don't even know, they talked about our love for one another, that was one thing they both said, they said, this church, you just, you can feel something different as you're you're getting to know the people, and then our love for the world. They use these and other descriptors to sound an awful lot like the church that Jesus was trying to inspire people to become. As we bring this message to a close, then here's the last thing that I invite you to consider. We can only shine as brightly as you. Because we are you, right? We are they. The church is us. church is us. And this is interesting. This just popped in my head for what it's worth. It's just, when I was talking about this big, beautiful building I had envy for, and I look at this big, beautiful building that God has let us in. God's in charge of all that, isn't he? That No building belongs to anybody other than God, so that's, Thank you, Lord, for that. Might have to change what I say in 1045, huh? Every follower of Jesus, every follower of Jesus should be trending towards Stephenness. Should be trending towards Stephenness. We all have gifts and talents just as he did. And if we don't use our talents to cultivate meaningful work, we struggle. Sharing our gifts and talents with the world is the most powerful source of connection with God. And using our gifts and talents create meaningful work. To do that, it takes a tremendous amount of commitment. And we'd be honored to partner with you in that commitment as together we do our best through the guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit to make this broken world a little less broken. None of us can do everything. None of us can do everything. We're not going to be saying, okay, you better be involved in refugee ministry and serving with our kids and doing this. No, not everybody can do everything. But maybe this is a something that God is going to ask you to get engaged with. One of the best ways to discern that is to try it to try it next week pastor jason's going to be sharing about how do we discern how do we discern what our individual response should be i'd encourage you to jump start on that there's a resource table back there when you go out into the lobby that has tons of information tons of ways you can get involved in a world as broken as ours broken as ours everyone should be engaged in a substantive something right can i get an amen to that substitute something. All right, well, at this time, I'm going to invite our worship band to come forward. And they're going to lead us in a song, a song that I first heard at our covenant annual meeting. This song, um, I'd never heard it before. And <laughs> evidently, this is a song that is God's using all around the world. All around the world, this is a song that people are joining their voices to. Voices to. It's being sung all over. It's a song that reminds us of the hope that we have in a God who is still very much at work in our world. And as they get into place, let's take time right now to commit or recommit ourselves to joining Him in that good work. Here on the screens, you're going to see um, a a prayer that Becca found, a prayer, and it's a responsive prayer. So I'll read the first part, I'll pray the first part of the prayer, and then when it gets to the all, if you could join your voice with mine, and let's pray this together. All right, let's pray. Lord, our God, who stopped at nothing and even sacrificed your son so that we could know you, hear our prayer. Lord, hear our prayer. We ask for forgiveness for the times we've forgotten, marginalized, and built barriers between ourselves and others, often because we don't understand them. Lord, hear our prayer. We ask for new eyesight as we walk into this world around us. We pray that you would transform our hearts and minds. Remind us to love those who are strangers in our midst. Lord, hear our prayer. We ask for your mercy and your grace to be with those who have suffered, those who are afraid, had to run from their homes. We pray that you would bring them miracles, signs of your hope on their journeys today, wherever they may be. Lord, hear our prayer. We pray that we would not live in fear, but instead with love and abandon, as you have also loved us, Lord, hear our prayer. We pray that you would allow us to see every person we come across. You have ripped the curtain in two to unleash your spirit upon the world. We pray that we would rip down curtains in our life that hinder the spirit of God from flowing through us and into our world. Lord, hear our prayer. We will go into the world. We will love with abandon. We will live without fear. Amen.